right, so we've got a simple task from what Pastor Thompson asked me to talk about today. There's about a semester's worth of financial planning mm -hmm. material. Uh, we're going to do an eight-week Dave Ramsey course. Um, we need another one. Um, we're going to do uh, about a two-year course on investment, uh, all in the next 35 minutes. And then we'll have room for questions. So everybody should have one handout that's S&P 500 return, uh, one that's got something handwritten inverted yield curve on it, a social security statement, a monthly budget statement, and then uh, the couple's retreat is a two-pager. And that's what we're going to cover today is the uh, couple's retreat part that's kind of our itinerary uh, for the day. So has everybody got all of those copies? We'll... We need a Social Security one. Okay. All right, well, before we start, let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that, Lord, you give us wisdom, give me wisdom, your words to say that I would be honoring to you in my presentation. You give me words to say that would be beneficial to my audience today. Lord, thank you for the opportunity just to serve. We thank you for the blessings you give us, and we pray for our families that, Lord, this conference would be an important uh, event in terms of learning, growing together as couples, learning how to be better parents. All the information is going to be presented both last night and today that we would use it to Again, build our futures financially, spiritually, and just our love for you, that you grow us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I have been doing this longer now than any of you have been living. I think this is my 39th year uh, in, in doing this, uh, in doing that. Uh, so uh, uh, we, we've had the opportunity to, to counsel a, a number of people. Uh, I, I work with primarily uh, individual clients in the investment area. A uh, big part of the work we do is just the, the financial planning to come up with a, a roadmap for what uh, somebody wants to do, what's always of interest to me. Uh, and that's where I really want to start out at. So as a couple, in your planning sheet. You guys as couples have to decide what is really important to you. I assume your speaker, has, as he just was in talking about families, you're going to have issues with growing your children, what you want your work careers to be, what you want your church and civic life to look like. You've got important questions to ask yourself because you can't do it all you don't have the resources or the time to do it all. So you're going to have to make difficult questions as to, again, what do I want my lifestyle to look like? What do I want my family relations to look like? And then you've got to tie that in with the financial resources that you have to use to accomplish those major goals that you want throughout your life. 
there really are no short-term fixes for most things. So you, the financial planning piece that somebody like myself would work with a couple on, if we don't have a good idea of what you want your lifestyle to look like, do we eat out a lot? Do we cook at home? Do I like to eat steak more than I like to eat broccoli? Uh, all of those decisions when we talk about budget in just a minute, you've got to have some hard conversations as couples to make sure that you're on the same page. It, it's been years ago, but I had a couple that came in. They're both working, no children. Their combined incomes were about $120,000, and they were flat broke, deeply in debt. Because he insisted, because he had what he thought was a stressful job, that he needed to play golf four days a week. And playing in golf involved playing golf and then hanging around uh, the clubhouse to have a few beers with his buddies. And so he's blowing a hole in their budget. Well, she decided if he's going to go do that, then I'm going shopping. So she's doing her best at whatever money he's spending. She's spending at least as much, and they just pull out the credit card. And then he decided, well, you know, one of my buddies has got a bass boat, and I'd really like that. No, why can't I have a bass boat, too, so that the other couple of days that I'm not playing golf, I can go fishing with my bass boat. And then the credit cards, of course, are blowing everything out of, there's no way they could support the lifestyle that they had. They just simply were not on the same page as to what was important to them, where they wanted to go, where they wanted to be. One of the real difficult issues as couples in deciding what's really important is getting on the same page. We have agreements. Uh, Sheila Payne and I, if we skip it, we'll come back to this in a minute. So if you look at your Social Security page, this is actually my wife's Social Security statement. So if you flip on the back, you'll see up there around the early 1990s, she worked as a teacher for three, well, four years till Zach was born. And then you'll see her taxable income went to zero. Because she decided she was expecting to go back to work teaching six to eight weeks after Zach was born. Zach's now 35. She brought Zach home from the hospital and informed me I'm not going back to work. You're the head of the house. You figure this out. <laughs> I'm not going back to work. If we live in a tent, that's okay, but I'm not going back to work. So uh, David had to uh, huddle up with himself and figure out, okay, how are we going to make this work? But we were on the same page all the time in that the stuff wasn't that important. I didn't need golf clubs. I didn't need a bass boat. I didn't need a lot of the trappings of stuff. Sometimes we get sucked into thinking we had to have. But I needed a wife that was happy, and I knew I wanted her home raising my children. 
that was a big picture item that I knew we needed. So then we, so you guys, you got to have with each other difficult conversations. Because we had a difficult conversation. I had been in this business for about a year and a half. I started with zero clients, zero income. We were dependent upon her teaching income. So my business was going, I was on my feet, but it was a long way from where I wanted to be in terms of success. So we had to kind of speed up that process greatly when, you know, but my wife would have been the most miserable person if she had gone back to work. She never enjoyed anything more in her life than doing the stroller scene down our road visiting the neighbors with two little boys because Andrew came along about two years later doing it. But that was really important to us. But those were, there were a couple of hard years there because the budget was really tight for a while. And we were blessed and able to get through that. But those are hard conversations you guys have to have. Now let's skip to the budgeting part. A lot of times, when I'm talking to that couple that are just, have just completely blown their budget, they had no budget. They were bringing in their income. They weren't making any effort to match the money coming in, $120,000 a year. This is 20 years ago, so that's a lot of income 20 years ago. And they're just spending it. No plan, no budget, nothing. They're just spending it. But they were, in the couple, several times we met, they're really seeing the budget as a vehicle for one spouse to restrain the other spouse from doing what they wanted to do. They saw it in a negative light. Uh, Sheila actually played the same card with me a little bit in, in the 20 years or so ago. I used to play golf about once a week. Uh, and I'd play with a neighbor who lived across the street, so Mike would call and we'd go play golf about once a week. Sheila decided, well, this is the opportunity for me that I can go, I can get online, and you know, if he's playing golf for four hours, I can shop online for four hours. And so we had a difficult conversation about that. So I had to back them and say, okay, I'll spend this much money and you can spend the same amount of money because you're killing me. Four hours of shopping, you can do a lot more damage uh, than I can in four hours on the golf course. So uh, we had to huddle up about that. But your budget, and you guys, if you pull out this monthly budget, and this is just something I copied off the internet. If you guys have heard of Dave Ramsey, there are some excellent and, and Pastor Chris, uh, uh, I know somewhere in that Dave Ramsey stuff, there's multiple text for resources oh, that yes, are yes. excellent for budgeting stuff. So, they have, so I know that Ramsey uses an app that you can, and that's, that app's available, and, and you can do all of your budgeting through that app. Yeah. Very, very, very easy yeah. to set up. And you guys are all going to have computers and some version of Excel on it, right? So you can just amend this. What you need to have in your budget is that list of what you're spending money on. You also need to have a list of your revenues, your income, what you're making, 
because those numbers need to match up. But what's lacking on this column, you need to have a budget and amount, and then you need to put in the actual numbers month by month that you're spending. So you can compare, just like the church does on your statement. It shows how much the church budgeted, and it shows how much you actually spent. You need that same thing for your own purposes. But you need to come to see it as a positive thing because what you've got to do in your budget for that to work is not just, well, you overspend in that area. You can't do that anymore, so it's all negative. It's a team effort, and you've got to have something allocated in that budget that is going toward whether it's the next car you're going to buy. It may be for a bass boat. And I, uh, forgive me, I'm being sexist because when I said bass boat, I looked at the two guys first and not the two women. Maybe you guys want the bass boat. Uh, forgive me for making a, maybe an incorrect assumption. Uh, on, Acknowledgement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, on, <laughs> you already got the boat. It's not the newest. <laughs> <laughs> so come up with that. Yeah. But you've got to set something aside in the budget that you both are working toward. And it may be something as simple as uh, we're going to do a special date night every other week, once a month or something. So we're setting some money aside in our savings account, our checking account, that that's our date night money. But it's in your budget. If you don't have it in your budget, you're not likely to do it. And where I see people blowing the budget most is right there. Yep, which I, I'm kind of a straight coffee thing, so the, the syrupy milkshake stuff just kind of in for me. But I, I had several years ago, a uh, mother got son to come in, and uh, he's trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Uh, his wife had some, some health problems, so she wasn't able to work as consistently as she would have liked to, so they were kind of struggling on the budget. And he walked in with one of these great big drinks and sat down, and we started talking a little bit, and he says, I really don't spend any money, and, and I don't eat out, and I don't buy a lot of stuff, and I'm looking at that drink, and I said, where do you eat lunch at every day? He said, oh, I usually stop at so-and-so, so-and-so, and I said, well, how much is that? Oh, maybe $10 or so. I said, well, how often do you buy one of those? Oh, usually twice a day. And, uh, so I'm thinking, okay, you're not, you don't think you're spending any money, but you add that up, you're spending 80 bucks a week that you're not even accounting. And that turns into $320 a month. Uh, okay. That kind of blows a hole in, in your budget and making your bills. But, you know, it's just if I had some money in my pocket and I'm not keeping track of it, I'm just buying different things. Uh, you know, in your budget, you need to have down what you actually spend. You need to huddle up together and go through that if you're keeping cash out of a paycheck, you need to account for that cash and where it's going. But you've got to be able to save some money that way. All right, I'm staying on track, Pastor Pauly. Yeah, I'm going to test to the, to the startups and all that. 
unfortunately. Yeah. For a year or more. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Yep. Well, on, on my end, both my sons work for me. Uh, so Andrew never drank coffee till four or five years ago. Now he's he buys these special beans from somewhere at Concord Mills and grinds them in the office and makes coffee. And uh, if you don't like strong coffee, you're not going to like whatever he's he's making. So, uh, I, I, but anyway. That's where I switched over. I, I order beans through Amazon. I grind them every morning. And they're slightly expensive, but when you consider you get 32 ounces and it's 20 bucks for, for a 32-ounce thing of beans, yep. and how long that lasts, I mean, I pay for that with four Starbucks. Yep. Yep. So, and a little, but that's just one example of stuff that, you can blow your budget with without really even thinking about it there. Just simply putting gas in the car is something. Sheila doesn't drive a lot, uh, but I drive probably four times as much in the course of a month as, as she does. So when you're filling your gas tank up now every week, uh, that starts to add up. It needs to be in your budget. Maintenance things. My brother has a boat and Something's always breaking on that thing, and none of it's ever cheap. Bust out another thousand dollar standpoint. Yep, that could be that. That needs to be in your budget, and you've got to have something in your budget for your bigger picture items, okay? So that you're setting money aside. You've got to set out what is a short term goal, what is a longer term goal. Your kid's college is going to be a longer term goal. Your retirement is going to be a longer-term goal. Your next leather sofa may be a shorter-term goal, something that you want in the next year or two. Getting your house repainted or putting a different deck on the back, something like that, those tend to be shorter-term goals that you're trying to reach over the next year or two or three. But the people that enjoy the budgeting process best, you put that in your budget, that we're setting aside a certain amount of money to accumulate for the next car, maintenance in the house, something, but you have, when I mention something once every, every other week, once a month, you need to have something that you go together on date night and you pat each other on the back to say, oh, we partnered, we set this as being important for us, we're getting there, we're making progress, tonight is celebrating our progress in doing what we wanted to do in our budget so that it's teamwork. Date nights don't work too well, at least from my experience, if I'm starting out, honey, there was $1,300 on the credit card bill last month. Not a good way for me to start date night, right? Okay, don't go there. You gotta keep it positive on that part. All right, now, um, let, let's switch to the investment side. Uh, one of the things that stuns me uh, is uh, Americans are functionally illiterate when it comes to investments, interest rates, and economics. We just don't learn that in school. 
So any of you guys got 401k plans? Yes, yes. Self-employed. Self okay. So you got to build your own retirement through some kind of retirement plan collection of assets. Okay. Um, Investment-wise, there's one adage that uh, always holds true. So don't fall for this. If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably not. Okay. There are all kinds of wild schemes out there. Uh, I, I had a, a client email Zach asking about some company that's promising a 12% return, which the stock market on average doubles every seven years. That's a 10, 11% return. 12% is, is really strong. So we, we got on the internet to look up this company. It shows nothing in the way of operating history, nothing in the way of revenues. You can't even tell if they got a checking account or not. Uh, so that promise, are you really talking about, in this case, putting a six-figure amount of money into a company that you don't even know if they've got any audited financials or not? And, and if it sounds too good to be true, you need to beware on it. So on your sheets, and, and what people don't, if you find this 25-year chart of the S&P 500, One misconception, the S&P 500 is just uh, an index of 500 of the largest companies uh, in the country. The S&P stands for Standard & Poor's. That's the company that put this index together. But often it seems clients have the misconception that uh, you either win or you lose it all. And it's not that way. 2022 was a lousy year for investments. We lost. That doesn't say that 2023 doesn't tell us that this is going to be a good year or a bad year. Statistically, there are a number of reasons that would point to this being a good year for stocks. But those statistics come in. If you look for the last 50 years, anytime any president, be they Republican or Democrat, is in the third year of their office, and President Biden, it's hard for me to call him that, but <laughs> it, with, with respect to the office, it's President Biden. It's his third year. The last 50 years of history, whether we've had a Republican or Democrat in office, in their third year, the stock market goes up. That's not to say it will this year. Now, has anybody heard the likelihood of us falling into recession this year. You heard that story on the news somewhere. They were either have been in a recession or uh, recession is imminent. Uh, we probably are going to have a recession sometime soon. Isn't it historically, you know, between 10 and 15 years as far as, you know, our, our market that uh, some, some sort of recession sets in? More frequently than that. More frequently than that. Yeah. But 12 months after you're technically in a recession by however they measure that, stock market's higher 100% of the time. So now, this always stumps people. But 
to be a shrewd, savvy investor, all you got to do is buy low and sell high, right? It's, it's that simple. And I'm grinning because it, psychologically, though, you guys, I was a longtime Oakland Raiders fan. For years, we were called Raiders of the Lost Touchdown because we were terrible. You know, we're losing 10, 12 games every year. Oh, we take that kind of mentality that, no, I'm not investing in that. They're Raiders of the Lost Touchdown. They've been terrible forever. But we just, last year was the worst year for bonds. So if you pick up your inverted yield curve page. So yeah, I just circled, those are federal treasury rates. So what I circled, just right now, you've got a 4% yield on short-term treasuries. You've got a 4% yield on a two-year treasury. Uh, you had a 36 uh, on your longer 10-year treasury, but a year ago, rates were about zero. Well, bonds work like this. When interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Well, when you hike interest rates 4% with the Federal Reserve, you just crush the bond market. So we're like this now with 4 and 5% interest rates and bonds are down greatly. Anybody heard about the bank issues that we've been having? Yes. Well, banks own a whole bunch of bonds. So you crush their bond market and their bond values are down 20%. I don't think we're going to have a great deal of run on the bank. Most of them are pretty well capitalized and, and they're managing that risk. But your banks are expected to be tightening lending standards because they've got billions and billions of dollars of bonds that are on their books at losses and it's going to constrain their ability to keep lending money the same rate because their capital's in the toilet, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now that'll level out, but this year with my clients, we're putting a lot more client money in bonds than we are in stocks. Well, I'm greatly in favor of the stock market and that's where you're gonna make your most money long-term, except maybe real estate or your own business things, but still buy low, sell high, worst bond market in, since at least 1980, if not since 1960-something, 4 and 5% yields, we're buying bonds more so than we're buying stocks. Uh, when you go back to your goals on your planning sheet, and I was talking about short-term and long-term goals, if you're within a year, maybe even two years on setting money aside for that next car, that next great big vacation, that next bass boat, whatever it is that you're setting money aside for. You want to end something like those treasuries, shorter term bonds, so that you're matching your time frame on your goal with when that money is going to be available and you're reducing your risk. Last year, the S&P 500, what was that number on there? I don't have my glasses. Minus 18. Right, so if you needed $10,000 for your next vacation, 
and you're setting aside that money, but you put it in the stock market planning on taking a trip the first part of 2023, but then the stock market turned 10,000 into 8,200. It's not a pleasant conversation to say, dearest, we're not gonna be able to take that trip. Well, we might be able to take that trip, but we're gonna to have to eat peanut butter and jelly instead of going out to eat something. That's not the conversation you wanna have either, right? So you don't wanna take your stock market, your real estate money needs to be allocated toward longer term goals. Stay conservative with your shorter term money so you don't have that unpleasant conversation that stock market's going down and your that account's in the toilet about the same time that you need the money for whatever purpose you've been faithfully setting it aside for. You follow me there? Mm -hmm. Now, I ask about 401k and other stuff. Investment-wise, your longer if your goals are two years or more out, look back at your S&P 500 sheet. You got three years in a row down there, 2000, 2001, 2002. So a lot of the, the S&P 500 is, is connected with technology stocks. At that time, you had Microsoft, uh, you had a bunch of internet companies, Apple's coming along, greatly inflated prices through the late 1990s. That bubble started to burst in 2000. Then we had 9-11 in 2001, and that threw us into a big recession in 2002. So you had a combination of things that you had unusual spot of three years in a row, the S&P returns were negative. For the most part, if you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, you had a period once in the 1930s, you had 1973 and four, and then you had here 2001 and 2002 is actually positive in 2000, but the S&P was negative. But for the Dow Jones Industrial Average that you see quoted all the time, for the last 90 years, there's only been three times that you had two losing years in a row. But you don't know this could happen again. But if your longer term time frame, two years or more out, so particularly at your ages, I'm gonna be telling you to put the majority of your assets that are retirement oriented, because you guys got a long time before your retirement age, most of that money needs to be going into the stock market. And if you don't like your statements, quit looking at them. Now, I, I said earlier, uh, if people are making investment mistakes, you're in it for the long haul. If you're down one quarter, you simply buy more while the price is down. And you wait for it to get better. Yes, sir. So, like in this situation, for the, for the year of 2022, at the, at the end of December 20, it's probably October, November, but I pulled everything out of S&P and put it in a... Um, the service fund, the low yield fund, what? Just because I was worried that what was going to happen. The end of 2022? No, the end of 2021. Okay. For the whole year of 2022. Oh, okay. No, yeah, nothing. you did great. I okay, I take it back. I take it back. No, yeah, I'd be, I'd be done if I did that. <laughs> but I'm saying, historically, is it better 
to do the month by month and watch the market and to pull it out and take it back out if it's a long-term investment like 30-year, 40-year retirement or take the hits, like you said, it, it doubles every seven years. You, you understand what I'm saying? Should I, should I play the market back and forth between S&P and take it out what I think is going to go good, think it's going to go bad, or leave it and take the hits and take the long-term average double goal, I guess you could say? Yes. Do you have hobbies? Yes. Do you have children? Yeah. Do you have a honey-do list? Always. <laughs> then you don't have time to play the market. So put it in there, keep buying, leave it. The, one of the mistakes people make, you did well to get out. When did you get back in? And, and that's the mistake most people make. I get people regularly tell me, oh, this guy that's in, in the White House is going to destroy things. The economy's falling apart. I've got a brother-in-law that told me this and saw this commercial that uh, we're going to have to learn to grow potatoes and buy gold because that's the only way we're going to be able to survive. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of stories out there. Most people want to wait till it all looks good again before they put their money back in. Well, what's happened in the meantime? You've had that big bounce back, and then you look at it and say, wow, everybody else on the block's got to be making money except for me, and I'm still in that fixed thing. The stock market's just going through the roof. And instead of buying low, and selling high and you did well to do that you sold at a high spot at the end of 2021 we had a great year in 2021 but the other half of that a lot of times you wait too long and you end up buying high when you try to get back in the market's exceedingly difficult to time i can't do it i've never met anybody that you know, you've got so many millions of people playing the game so to speak that inevitably there are some people that get it right but that's a lot like having a perfect bracket uh, here in March Madness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody's getting it right, but, uh, but it makes it difficult. All right, so David, I got a question. Go. Um, since you did deal with, you know, looking into 2023 and, um, and just that whole situation of recession, what, what are you – hearing conservatively related to um, worldwide currency and, you know, things of that nature, possibly tied to some of the bank issues going on right now and in the U.S., particularly in Europe and all that. What, what do you view as credible information on that, you know, right now, Because uh, that all impacts, what, you know, what we're kind of looking at. Absolutely, whether the dollar goes up or down or not affects how much we have to pay for oil because mm -hmm. we still import a lot of it. Has all those goods that we import from China, uh, the value of our dollar affects everything that we buy. So yes, it's, it's very important doing that. Now, <laughs> I, I have heard different versions for 20 plus years that China wants to be the dominant currency uh, to replace the dollar. Anybody heard that story? If not, you don't watch Fox News or some of the conservative news outlets. 
we shot. My wife likes Steve Bannon, and he has Peter Navarro on, who's said China's going to rule for since he was probably Caleb's age, probably. Uh, no, that's he's a broken record on that. He may eventually be right, but but their behavior in respect to how they manage their currency, the yuan, for years they kept the yuan pegged to the dollar. The reason they did that is so their cost, they're trying to build their exports to us. If they let the yuan float and the yuan goes up and they actually crush the dollar, then we're not able to afford all the stuff that we're buying now. So the Chinese, yes, maybe they want to be world dominant, but if they succeed in their currency being high and our currency being low, then that means all that stuff that they're trying to sell us, we can't afford to buy, and they just destroyed their economy. So maybe politically they're trying to accomplish that, but in doing so, they destroy their own economy. So I'm, I'm not buying all of that argument. The well, we simply wouldn't be able to buy them. Right. So, you, akin to that, what about like a one, a one world currency? Do you, are you seeing credible things that are saying that could happen soon? There is a plausible argument that some version of Bitcoin can become that one world currency. Uh, I say plausible, not probable. Okay. Uh, um, the United States, we're able to apply sanctions on other countries in the form of restricting trade and the uh, ability to move money around the world and to finance things. So it would be a major deal for us not to be the world's reserve currency. So that's something that, while I, I've got great issues with our current administration, I can't imagine that anybody in, in control of the White House is going to be that stupid, although <laughs> I wonder that you're really going to jeopardize that. So. The Federal Reserve and the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do what's necessary to restrict the ability to do cryptocurrency mm -hmm. to protect that reserve status. We just can't afford to lose it. And, and our military might is nice, but that's not what we really control things with. We control things with those sanctions because we are the world's reserve currency. So crypto is going to grow. Uh, but I don't see it becoming that one world currency because each little nation, including ours, is going to fight for their own currency. The Europeans with the Euros, right. they don't want to give that up either. So your world governments, uh, I just don't see them coming together to do that. So, but revelations is revelations. At some point, something's going to happen, but I don't see it any anytime soon. Could come from the, from the EU too. Could be. The Could be. <laughs> but, okay. yeah, so plausible, not probable. What about, that's like, a, let's talk about the development and the advancement of AI. How do you think that 
affects, you know, with jobs and economies, and you know, affect the U.S. dollar. Do you think that that would drop the U.S. the value of the U.S. dollar? Being that it would change the unemployment. It'll go the other way. It'll go the other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because. next 10 to 15 years, we have, and this is personal viewpoint, we have producers and we have takers. We have people that pay taxes and we have people that don't pay taxes. Uh, we have a big shortage of skilled labor and we have an education system that is failing badly. Anybody heard the story? So you're a different generation than I am. My generation likes to say, your generation doesn't like to work. Heard that before? <laughs> we don't argue with that. But they change mind when you see the newest generation. We don't argue with that. Yeah. So uh, my view is that we're going to end up with kind of a, an upper tier of people who are producers that are supporting 70% of people that are not producers. You're going to end up with some version of a national minimum income level. Now, the, the conservative right just scoffs at that. And, and so when somebody was running for president last time was suggesting $1,200 a month for a minimum income, we just send you a check for $1,200, every person. You do what, with it what you want to. If you want to pay health insurance, if you want to buy groceries with it, but that's your money. And we think that's just terrible. But when you look and see what our social safety net is, the guy didn't exactly had it wrong because if he started adding up all the benefits and entitlements, it was more than that $1,200 minimum level anyway. But we're going to have end up with a society of people that produce and live well and we're going to have the other 70 percent is my estimate of people that are, are just hanging around for the entitlement check. To your question, AI will unleash tremendous increases in productivity of labor mm. but only for the producers because the bottom 70% either with no job skills or no interest in holding down a job, there will still be some very low skill jobs. Somebody's gonna have to clean the floors or do some other stuff. You're gonna have the little computerized robots doing a lot of it. Yeah. But somebody, there's still, there's always gonna be a certain level of unskilled work required. But the more productivity we get out of our manufacturing processes, the cheaper the unit cost of production gets, and the rest of the world is going to be coming our way because we're going to be the dominant. I, I see us being the dominant manufacturing country again because of robotics and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And essentially that will hurt probably the middle class the worst. Well, that's what I'm saying. Sounds to me like that. that the middle class is already class fading class. away. Like you said, there was only going to be a top tier and a lower tier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. You're going to have an upper tier and a lower tier.
the scary part of AI is it's smarter than we are. So your science fiction stories about uh, all these bizarre things happening, plausible but not proper, probable. So scary. I, I get two more things quickly, and then we'll ask a couple more questions. So on Social Security, um, when Zach and Andrew had to go to work at age 16. Uh, that's just the way we are with my family. Um, so they've been in Social Security for a while. But if you look at Sheila on the first page, uh, she turns 62 tomorrow. Tomorrow's her 62nd birthday. So if she wants, she's going to be able to start drawing $648 a month. That's a little better than $7,000 a year. Have you heard your parents or grandparents' generation say, well, I paid into Social Security all that time. I'm just using my own money. The government promised me this benefit. I paid for it. Anybody heard that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So Sheila, if she wanted to tomorrow, can start drawing out $7,000 a year. If you look down there at the bottom on the left, it says she's paid in $11,000 and her employer paid in $11,000. So she's paid in $22,000. Even if you're public school math students, $22,000 divided by seven, how long is it going to take her to take all her money out? A little over three years, right? So if I'm setting up an investment scheme like that, I'm going to be thrown in jail because it's a Ponzi scheme. But if you're the federal government, it makes it work. But the pot runs dry in 2034. So for your planning purposes, right now there's enough money coming in to replace 80% of that benefit. So when you start getting these on your own, I think you need to, whatever that number says, take 20 or 30% off of it because I don't think you're ever going to collect the full benefit you've been promised. I don't see Social Security going away, but you need to plan on having less than what that sheet's paying you, because the pot will run dry long before you retire. Another thing to converse, uh, if you're at all thinking property, land, parents' houses, grandparents' houses, look, write down this term, step up in basis. So um, mom inherited about 20 acres along Fourth Creek. It's, it's not worth anything. It's it's just scrub farmland that you can't grow anything on. But it was $500 an acre was the value when it came to her after her father died. Um, part of the estate planning that they've done, that eventually will be mine after mom and dad have both passed. If they give it to me now, then I assume my mother's $500 an acre cost basis. So that if I then go sell it for $5,000 an acre, then I've got a $4,500 capital gain. Not a good plan. But uh, if we wait and I inherit it, I get the value, the cost basis at the time of her death or dad's death, whoever dies second. So 
that basis would step up from 500 to a current value of 5,000, I then go sell it, I don't have any capital gain event. So sometimes, and this is a hard decision, you want, sometimes you want to get assets out of grandma's name so that the federal government will pay the Medicaid bill. But then when you gift them, that means you've got the lower cost basis for something. So before your family, and, and so this is really a multi-generational thing, just runs out and says, let's get everything out of grandma's name, consider you're giving up that step up in basis when it gets gifted, okay? So there's some hard decisions around that, but don't let grandma blindly just take stuff out of her name because she's afraid she'll be in nursing home at some point in time, okay? You follow me there? Because you can run into a big capital gain issue if you don't handle that right. Yes. On your 401ks or retirement plans, most of that traditionally is done on a pre-tax basis where you put in the money, you deduct that off your income. But then when you go to use the money, you pay taxes on what you put in and you pay taxes on the gains. Most of your incomes are likely to be falling where you're in a 15, 12, 15% income tax bracket. Unless you're in a 25% or higher tax bracket, you would be better off to do it on an after-tax basis through what's called a Roth IRA. Uh, more and more 401k plans will have a Roth option so that you're putting the money in on an after-tax basis, which means you don't get a deduction now, but if you put in $5,000 this year, doubling every seven years, 10, 20, $40,000, 20 years later, you got a $40,000 pile of money that you don't pay any taxes on when you go to use it in retirement. You really need to consider the Roth option over just the regular traditional. Now, if you got it, again, if you're upper income, 25% bracket or higher, then probably take the deduction. But less than that, I greatly favor the Roth. And we're done. I can stick around and answer questions, but you got five minutes till the next session starts.